I just said that to get you to Matthew 19, so completely ignore what I just said if you don't care. And I'm going to start at verse uh, 13. Okay. The little children were brought, um, were being brought to him, Jesus, in order that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples spoke sternly to those who brought them, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. And he laid his hands on them and went on his way. Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, I want you to really pay attention to this language, okay? Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, I really pay attention to this, okay? Jesus said to him, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all of these. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Just to go ahead and throw this out there, Jesus is not saying it's bad to be rich, okay? So that's that's not the context here. 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, then who can be saved? If you think about this, that's a really odd statement, okay? Which is why the context is huge. Jesus says, it's hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Their response is, then who can be saved? You would think the right response for them would be, then what rich person can be saved? But somehow they're, they're, they're translating this or interpreting this very different than how we typically interpret it, Right? They take what Jesus says and then say, well, then who on earth can be saved if that's the case? And they're saying that as disciples who were not probably rich. Okay, so it's really interesting phrasing here. 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible. But for God, all things are possible. Such an odd exchange here. So we think, 27. Then Peter said in reply, uh, in reply, look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, and you, or excuse me, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, mother, uh, fathers, mothers, or children, or fields, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Okay, um, interesting, interesting passage here. And uh, so I'm, I'm gonna start out reading some stuff I wrote about it and then we'll get back to the scripture. Here we go. Today, I wanna talk about the topic of single-minded obedience. Single-minded obedience. Last week, we spoke on costly grace, 
how the value of grace that we experience will be determined by the price we pay for it. So if you missed it, highly recommend going back, listening to it. Uh, Today, however, we're moving into costly grace to see how it works. What does a life look like within costly grace? Obedience is one of the things that has kept people in cheap grace. Obedience is defined by submission to another's authority, order, request, or law. Okay, So to be obedient to Christ is to submit to his authority or his leading. To submit simply means to yield. It means to accept. Therefore, without obedience, by definition, we are not following Christ. Okay, Obedience is submitting to someone else's way. Therefore, to not be obedient is to not follow that someone's way. Okay? So, today we're, we're going to try to explain obedience, or excuse me, let me rephrase this. Let me say this again. I, I misspoke. Today, in this day, we try to explain away obedience with philosophical, what I call fantasies, that Jesus said this, but what he really meant was this. And we take very plain, explicit calls of Christ as seen in Scripture, and we reinterpret or ignore them to fit what we need them to be. But the truth remains that the call is just a simple call. It's no frills or thrills. And as we've said before, our answer to the call is not made known by what we say. It is made known by what we do. So this is what James 1.8 says. James 1.8 says, The doubter, being double-minded, is unstable in every way and must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Okay? Double-minded is unstable. Double-minded is a Jewish idea expressing competing impulses in the human personality. Okay? So James using this phrase, double-minded, is a Jewish idea that expresses competing impulses in a human personality. All of us has this, okay, or have this. Why why can't the double-minded person expect to receive anything from the Lord? Because the double-minded person wants to follow Christ into a life of costly grace, but is also bought into a competing idea of security that living in control has offered, right? So we all want to follow Christ. We all want costly grace like we talked about last week. The the message last week, everybody wants that, okay? Everybody wants costly grace, but what, excuse me, but what we don't want typically is we don't want to follow in the, what we feel like is an unsecure way that following Christ into costly grace requires of us which means our idea of safety and our idea of not being safe is what is really warped. So I believe if I'm in control of whatever situation I'm in in my life, I feel like that's safe. And the reason I feel like it's safe is because I'm in control. So if I have $100,000 in my bank account, I feel safe. You know what I'm saying? I feel like, okay, I'm taken care of. If junk hits the fan, we've got enough backup savings. And having a savings is not a bad idea. You should have a savings. But my point is, is that if the Lord calls me out, and let's say the Lord calls me to, I don't know, give that away, for example. Now, I have to make a decision, a major decision, 
to redefine what safety is based on the call of the Lord. And typically, we would say, now I know that's a really extreme example, okay? Most of us don't have $100,000 in the bank. At least, I can only speak for myself. But, but when we follow Christ, typically, Christ is doing two things, and this is what we're talking about today. He is both calling us into something, but by calling us into something, he is also calling us out of something. And most of the time, what he's calling us out of is even more important than the thing he's calling us into. Okay, so just hang with me. So double-minded can't expect to receive anything from the Lord because the double-minded person wants to follow Christ into costly grace, but also has bought into a competing idea of security that living in control is offered. So using the example of Peter from last week, Peter being double-minded would have looked something like responding to Jesus' call to follow him with, I want to follow, but I also have this fishing business. So let me get that in order and save up enough in case your thing doesn't work out, and then I'll follow. That's what double-minded would have looked like in Peter. Double-minded is following Jesus on our terms, okay? Double-minded is following Jesus on our terms. It is obedience to our idea instead of obedience to the call of Christ. We'll get to why Christ calls us that way and the way he does it in a moment, but first I wanna look at the story of the rich young man, okay? The rich young man, Um, rich young ruler, whatever you wanna call him, Um, which you would also have to redefine what rich means in the story as well to call him rich, but anyway. The question that the rich young man asked of Jesus is, what good deed must I do to have eternal life, right? What good deed must I do? Jesus responds with, I'm gonna need you to pay attention to this because you've never, I promise you, you've never seen this before, okay? I've never seen this before this week. Jesus responds with this. What, or excuse me, why do you ask me what is good? Now, some translations there say, um, why do you ask me who is good? There is only one who is good. But the, the correct translation should be, why do you ask me what is good? So, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter life, which is Zoe there, Zoe life, God life, then keep the commandments. So much going on here. First, the rich young man is asking what he needs to do in order to gain life. Okay? He's asking what he needs to do to gain life. The first thing Jesus does is correct the man's idea of how to gain life. It's not what you can do that is good. It is who God is that is good. Okay? What, what deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus responds and says, why do you ask what is good? There is only one thing that's good, and it is a who, not a what, and it's God. So, so if you can see this, the first thing, because Jesus is a brilliant teacher, He is a brilliant rabbi. If you know anything about the Jewish mind, it is multifaceted. 
They use parables for a reason. They say things for a reason. They, they leave things out of what they say for a reason. Everything that Jesus says has a purpose and the way that he says it has a purpose. So when he's talking about keeping the commandments, Jesus is going after something much deeper than what he's doing in keeping the commandments. Okay? So the first thing he does is correct his mindset. It's not what you do to gain life. It's who God is that gains you life. However, then he says to get what he asked for, he needs to keep the commandments. Does that not go against the very thing Jesus just said? Isn't that weird? Jesus, what good deed must I do? And Jesus says, no, it's not. Don't ask what deed you need to do that's good. No deed you do is going to be good. It's only God that's good. But for you to have eternal life, do this. Huh? You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? That doesn't make any sense. Here's what Bill Johnson says. Revelation exists, y'all know this, in the tension between two seemingly contradictory ideas. And this seems very contradictory. What Jesus seems to be doing here is redefining the man's idea of the commandments. The commandments are not about what good you do to get to God. The commandments are how to follow the one who is good, which is God. So, because we believe, to be honest with you, because our idea of the whole Christian faith is what we do is karma, you know what I mean? I mean, I feel like a lot of Christians are following kind of a pseudo-Buddhism. You know, I do good, I get good, I do bad, I get bad. You know what I mean? Welcome to Buddhism 101. And no, that's not, that's not this. In fact, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were doing the bad stuff, we got the good stuff. So anyway, but because that's our view of Christianity... When we read uh, passages like this, and the rich young ruler, the rich young man says, what deed must I do? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. Our idea of the commandments is, this is what you do to get in right graces with God. Many problems. Number one, God delivers the Israelites before he gives them the commandments. So they were delivered, and then he says, this is what you do to live in deliverance. Not, this is what you do, and if you do them right, I will deliver you. No, they were given life. And then God gives them the commandments in order to remain in life. See what I'm saying? So the rich young man's idea of life is, this is what I get in return for what I do. So Jesus is not just trying to change the man's idea of, what, of how to get to life. He's also trying to change the man and those following and those listening, their idea of the commandments. So when he says, keep the commandments, it isn't contradicting him saying to the man, there's nothing good you can do. But in order to understand that, you've got to re-understand the commandments. So check this out. You ready? The commandments are not about what you do, good do, you do to get to God. They're about how to follow the one who is good, which is God. Jesus is reorienting the man's perspective from a legal relationship with God based on the work of your hands to a covenant relationship with God based on the posture of your heart in response to God's heart posture toward him first. However, the man does not understand what Rabbi Jesus is teaching here. So he asks, which command should I keep? See this? 
Jesus said, keep the commandments. And the man says, all right, which ones? Is that not weird? All of them. You know what I'm saying? Okay, which ones do I need to keep? This is what Jesus says. What I'm about to tell you is the most brilliant thing I've ever read, I think, in the Gospels, and it's Jesus, okay? So check this out. Jesus then entertains his question with a straightforward answer, and it's brilliant. He lists all the Ten Commandments related to doing something, but leaves out the commandments that are about relationship to God. Here we go. You ready? What commandments? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Also, love your neighbor as yourself. Those aren't all the commandments. There's four commandments missing from that that Jesus does not list. You know what they are? Have no other gods except me, which is single-hearted, single-minded covenant, as in a marriage, right? So it's the equivalent of me telling Jordan, have no other husbands but me, right? Do not make for yourself a false idol, which is similar to the first commandment. Do not worship what your hands have made. God alone, whose hands made you, is worth worshiping. That's what do not make for yourself a false idol is saying, don't worship what your hands make. Worship the hands that made you. Okay? Number three, don't take the Lord's name in vain, which is don't take for granted the name that you now carry. Again, marriage language. And then number four is to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy because it is rest, and in that rest you are like God. Okay? So four commandments Jesus leaves out of the commandments that he needs to list for this man to do in order to have eternal life. And they are worship God alone. Don't worship what your hands make. Worship God alone, okay? Don't take the name of the Lord in vain that you've been given, not by the works of your hands, but simply because God chose to give you it. And number four, stop doing stuff and rest, Sabbath. All of those, all of those, have to do with you stopping something in order to behold something. But the rest of them have to do with you doing or not doing something, which is do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and also you should love your neighbor as yourself. All of those commandments have to do with you interacting with other human beings. The first four commandments, which he leaves out, solely has to do with your interaction with God. Remember the, remember the beginning of this. What deed must I do to have eternal life? And he says, why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones? Okay, so after he lists those, he says, the young man, I've kept all of these since my youth. So what do I still lack? This is what Jesus says. If you wish to be perfect, go sell everything, give the money to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and follow me. What do I still lack? Letting go and following me, which is exactly what the four commandments that he left out that he should do are about. Sacrifice. Isn't that really interesting? The rich young man says, I've kept them all. This is, this is what... Uh, 
Let me, let me, let me read this to you. Um, if you wish to be perfect, one more time, so you just get it. Go sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. The man's response in 22 says, he left grieved. Here's what the word grieved is in the Greek. It's lupeho in Greek. Now, that word is found elsewhere, specifically in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. And guess where that's found? It's found in Genesis 3.16, when in response to Adam and Eve disobeying the call of God, God tells Eve that she will have painful childbirth. The Greek word there for painful childbirth is the exact same word that Matthew or the writer of Matthew uses here when the man leaves grieved. It's not just he was sad. It is a deep, emotional, intense pain that he leaves with. Let me read this from a Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship. This is in page 82, if you have the book. Um, for those of you listening later, if you want to read it. Um, let, me, let me just re read what he says. When Jesus calls the young man in the story to enter into the situation where faith is possible, he does it only with the aim, only with the aim of making the man have faith in him, which is to say, he calls him into fellowship with himself. In the last resort, what matters is not what the man does, but only his faith in Jesus as the Son of God and mediator. At all events, poverty or riches, marriage or celibacy, a profession or the lack of it, have in the last resort nothing to do with it. Everything depends on faith alone. So far then, we are quite right. It is possible to have wealth and the possession of this world's goods and to believe in Christ so that a man may have these goods as one who has them not. But this is an ultimate possibility of the Christian life only within our capacity insofar as we await with earnest expectation the return of Christ. And Bonhoeffer's talking about the new creation and how this connects to it. So what he's saying here is, when Jesus calls the man to follow, the aim of that was not him being poor. Jesus, this is not a passage about rich people needing to be poor in order to be in the kingdom of heaven. It's not what this is about. This is an aim of obedience, and the aim of obedience is always faith, and the aim of faith is always union. God does not call us to anything just to simply call us. The call always has the primary and sometimes exclusive purpose of faith, which leads to union. So the call to the rich young man to sell everything and follow had nothing to do with his money. Because remember, Jesus had just taught him it was not about what he did. So him selling his possessions, giving them to the poor, is not the aim. Jesus just told him what you do is not good enough to get what you ask for. But it was about who God is and him in relation to who God is that the aim of Jesus' request was at. It wasn't about selling his possession and giving to the poor so that he could have eternal life. 
he needed to let go of the thing that kept him double-minded in order to get what Jesus was actually calling him to, which was single-minded union with God. For this man, keeping the thing that made him double-minded was the safety of his possessions. That was it. It was the thing that kept him double-minded. And remember what James said, double-minded men and women cannot expect to receive things from God. Why? Not because God's not releasing them, but because being double-minded and unstable in every way allows you to be in a spot where you can't receive the things God is giving you because of your instability. So being single-minded in your obedience is really a call to stability to inherit union. Okay? So for this man, keeping his possessions was making him double-minded. He believed, the man, that he could continue living in security, in the security of the union of what his hands had accomplished while still doing all the right things and in his works achieve God, Christian life, etc. But Christian life is God life. And God life is defined by Christ. So the Christian life is nothing more or less than union with life itself, who is Christ. Okay? God is aiming in love at anything that stands in the way of you in union with him. That's where the call comes from. That's where it comes in. God will always call us to things that require faith because faith is the aim of obedience and faith is what produces union. If it does not challenge us to lean on God in complete trust, it typically is not an obedient call to the call of Christ. Here's how you know if Christ is calling you to something. Does it cause you to have to lean on God in complete trust? If it does, it's probably a call from Christ. If you can achieve the thing that is in your mind by way of complete security in your own hands, it might not be the call of Christ. And I say might because maybe it is. But the rich young man could not bring his possessions into following Jesus because, for example, no one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. That's Matthew 6, 24, which precedes this story of the rich young man. And again, Jesus is not saying you can't have money. Jesus is saying you cannot serve God while also serving money. Having money and serving money are very different things. Serving money is when you lay down things of God in order to keep what you have, okay? Serving God and not money is when you're willing to lay down the things you have in order to pursue God, and in, in response to that, God will always give you more to steward. So, okay, this is what Matthew 5, 48 says also. He says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions um, that is directly pointing back to Jesus something said in the Sermon on the Mount, which is, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's not saying, again, do perfection. He's saying, be what your Father is, not what you are. If your Father's perfect, you're perfect. Therefore, be what your Father is. Not do this and you'll be perfect like God. 
It's be what God is because God in Christ has become what you are. All right. So Jesus was calling the rich young man to single-minded obedience. But in order to do that, the thing that caused him to be double-minded had to be dealt with. So the call of Christ to this man was not a call to sell his possessions. It was a call to leave behind the thing that made him divided, which happened to be his possessions. So what if we started seeing the call of God like that? What if the calling of God is not about what we're supposed to do as much as it is about who God longs for us to become? Or we might say it like this. What if the calling is not about what we're supposed to do as much as it is about what we need to get untethered from in order to be embraced by union with the one who we were made for? When we, um, when we started the church, um, I assumed we were starting a church. A few months ago, the Lord, and I wrote this in my Bible in the back, and I don't usually write in my Bible. I just don't like doing that. Um, but uh, I wrote it in my Bible so I could remember it. One morning I was in prayer, and I just felt the Lord say, I didn't call you to start a church. I called you to create space. And that space is what this church is. And I said, Lord, what are you talking about? And he said, what I needed in my life, and if I'm being honest, what you needed in your life, what I needed was the space that religion never let me have to become wild again. And in order to get me into that space, he called us to start a church. But his calling for my life was not to start a church. His calling for my life was to be released into space and freedom. And in order to be released into space and freedom, he called us to start a church. So this is, uh, this is about a lot more than us just having services every Sunday. You know what I'm saying? And it's the same with you. You would look back over your life, and in the moments that you felt like the Lord was calling you to do something, in those moments, we really believed that the Lord was just simply calling us to do something. But if you look back on your life, you'll see that by doing the thing the Lord called you to, you let go of things that you would not have let go of had you not followed Christ into something else. And maybe the aim of God calling us sometimes, maybe most of the time, Maybe the aim is him untethering us from the stuff that has kept us from becoming who we can really be, who we're supposed to be. And in doing that, he calls us into a place where we become that maybe wasn't even about being um, in that right space or doing the right thing or being in the right career. Maybe it was about untethering ourselves from the safety of where we were before in order to rely on the trust of God that leads us to union. Does that make sense? So what if we started seeing the call of God like that? Let me read one more passage from Bonhoeffer. Nope, I got two more. Um, but they're not long. This is what he says. The elimination of single-minded obedience on principle, on principle is but another instance of the perversion of costly grace of the call of Jesus into cheap grace of self-justification. So we have a lot of today. By this means, a false law is set up which deafens men to the concrete call of Christ. This false law of the world, which, uh, of which the law of grace is at once the, uh, excuse me, the complement and the antithesis. 
the world here, in this case, is not the world overcome in Christ and daily to be overcome anew in fellowship with him, but the world of hardened, rigid, impenetrable, legalistic principle. So what then happens? What then happens is grace has ceased to be the gift of the living God in which we are rescued from the world and put under the obedience of Christ and is rather a general law, a divine principle, which only needs to be applied to particular cases. Struggling against the legalism of simple obedience, we end up setting up the most dangerous law of all for ourselves, which is the law of the world and the law of grace. And in our effort to combat legalism, we land ourselves in a worst kind of legalism. And the only way to overcome that is by real obedience to Christ when he calls us to follow him. For in Jesus, the law is at once fulfilled and canceled. Again, what is he saying here? He's saying, when Jesus calls us to follow, we've created a religion that has made following Jesus a rigid principle. You know what I'm saying? And like I said last week, everybody in the city of Columbia follows Jesus. But what does it mean to follow Jesus? I mean, like, just think about what, what does it mean if I say I follow Jesus? What does that mean? Does it mean that I read my Bible? Does it mean that I pray? Does it mean that I go to church? Does it mean that I serve? Like, what, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Because everything I just said, it ha- it'll help your relationship with Jesus, absolutely. Reading your Bible will, is great for your relationship with Jesus, okay? But if I say I'm following Jesus, following is an action. Following is what the disciples did when they left everything and followed. Following is what the disciples did when the Romans, later on after the New Testament, um, before 70 AD, most of them before 70 AD, when the Romans go to them and say, if you'll just, if you'll just say Caesar is also king. We don't even, you don't even have to make Caesar above. If you'll just tell everybody that Caesar is also a king, you're good. And following Jesus is what caused them to say, knowing it would kill them, no, there's only one king and his name is Jesus and it's not Caesar. That's what following Jesus, following Jesus means making decisions based on the call of Christ, even if it means the expense or the cost of something that we find safe. Because what we define as safe if we're being honest, is the most unsafe thing you and I live in, which is our own control. And what we define as unsafe, or we say, we label it like this, a step of faith. Even that, the fact that you taking a step of faith is different than just your normal steps is proof that we've made obedience to Christ something that's just simply a principle. You know, us starting a church was not a step of faith. It was just another step. Do you know what I'm saying? And yes, it required faith, but 
every step we take should require some faith if we're following him, right? And so what Bonhoeffer and what the New Testament and Jesus and the, the early church and the church fathers are all trying to get the church into is not making this a bunch of principles or just another religion that we're all a part of. This is an active life where you lay down who you were before and you take up God's own life, which means if it costs you everything, that's the call we accepted. You know what I'm saying? This is why, you know, we don't, um, when we do big, off, like Billy Graham, love Billy Graham, um, but uh, when we did the, big, did, did the big stadium, you know, stuff, when we did that, um, it was never, ever, ever, to my knowledge, and if I'm wrong, somebody correct me later, um, but I've been to a lot of these conferences, and it's always a salvation call that says, you've got big plans, God's got big plans for your life, God's got big dreams for your life. God's called you to have possessions. You know, God's called you to pastor the megiest of mega churches on earth. God's called you to preach at conferences that are billions of people. Um, God's called you to have YouTube channels with thousands of subscribers or whatever, TikTok followers, whatever the new thing is, right? And then people just like run, you know what I mean? That's me, you know? I feel the call of God. In, in, in not, here's what, and here's why they all burn out is they get home and they realize the first step to obedience is dying. You know what I'm saying? Which we don't tell people because how many people are gonna run to the front to an altar call and we say, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna open up the altars. If anybody would like to die to their self, please run to the front. You know what I'm saying? Nobody does that, right? And that's the problem. The problem is, is we've told people following Christ means chasing your dreams, right? Which it does as long as what precedes chasing your dreams is dying to what you were before Christ entered your story first, right? Jesus did not tell Peter he was gonna be the rock of the church before Peter left his fishing nets and followed. You see what I'm saying? And so, what we have is this principle which says, I follow Jesus, but we have very few people who actually follow Jesus. And because of that, we have created churches that reinforce people's principles rather than calling people into what it means to follow Jesus. And that's why we have to teach people how to be happy and how to get, have good marriages. You know, in, February, in this February is Valentine's Day. We're gonna do a marriage series. We're gonna teach everybody how to have good marriages, which is amazing, Right? But you would start to have really good marriages if you simply learned to die to yourself. And we would know how to die to ourselves if we were told in the beginning, that's what we were signing up for, for God to be my number one. If God's your number one, guess what? You can't be your number one too. You see what I'm saying? So we have all these slogans that we throw around in these principles, but the church is not doing anything in the earth right now. Well, I'll take the back. In America, it's not doing anything in the earth right now because we've created a gospel that lays down the call to leave everything and follow. So we, we rip out, just like the Enlightenment period, we rip out all the uncomfortable stuff, throw it away, and then we have this cute, you know, this cute little gospel that we invite people into, which they love because they don't got to do anything. 
know what I'm saying? We make it. Come here, you'll go to heaven when you die. Awesome. I'm going to go get my security. I'm going to go home and I'm going to keep living my life. You know what I'm saying? There's a reason why there's a reason why typically in those gospel messages they don't use a lot of scripture. You know what I'm saying? And it's because that's not what the script This is calling us if if Christ laid down his life to save the human race, which he did, then the proper response from the human race is to lay down our life to take up the life that he paid such a cost for. You and me living in the image and likeness of God must be valuable because God paid the highest possible price he could pay in order for you and I to get it back. It must be valuable. God doesn't just do that for cheap stuff. So for us to settle for a cheap version of life is for us to say we don't want the thing that costs God everything and instead want to live in something cheap when we have access freely to something that is costly, it's just going to cost us to lay down everything we were before. And let's be real. All the stuff that we were before Christ entered our story was not that good anyway. You know what I'm saying? So God did not call us to places so that we could do things. God called us into a faith which is produced by obedience, which results in union so that we could become things. So there are levels much deeper to the call of God than we've ever realized because we live in this legalistic view of the gospel. Because God only cares about what we do, we'll give, or that he'll give us the reward of our uh, works, then we focus so much on what we do. But what God cares about is who we are and who we can only be realized within union with God. God cares about who we are and who we can be, which is only realized within union with God. Therefore, God will call us to be obedient, to leave everything and follow, for example, not just to leave everything and follow, but so that we can enter into the vast world of union that he knows everything in us was made for. And that's why Matthew 19, the last part of the passage, ends with this. The disciples said, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich, he says to the disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter in. The disciples say, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, for mortals, this is impossible, but for God, all things are possible. Let me read you what Bonhoeffer says about this. Last part of Bonhoeffer, and then I'm going to close it out. Almost done. I'm going to get you all early today. I can see your brains just whirling. Uh, let me read this, starting uh, 84. He says this, Obedience to the call of Jesus never lies within our power. If, for instance, we give away all of our possessions, that act is not in itself the obedience that he demands. In fact, such a step might be the precise opposite of obedience to Jesus, for we might then be choosing a way of life for ourselves, some Christian ideal, some ideal or Franciscan poverty that we might come up with. So he's saying, for instance, 
If you read this passage and say, well, I need to sell everything and give it, to, give it to the poor in order to follow Jesus. Bonhoeffer's saying, you might be doing the opposite of obedience because that wasn't the purpose of the call in this passage. Indeed, in the very act of giving away his goods, a man can give allegiance to himself and to an ideal and not to the command of Jesus if doing it on your own. So he is not set free from his own self, but still more enslaved to himself. The step into the situation where faith is possible is not an offer which we make to Jesus, but always his gracious offer to us. Only when the step is taken in this spirit is it admissible. But in that case, we cannot speak of a freedom of our choice of our own part. And then he quotes this passage, which I read, and I'm going to read it one more time. He said unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, King James, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, of God. And when the disciples heard it, they were astonished exceedingly, saying, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked upon them and said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The shocked question of the disciples, Who then can be saved, seems to indicate that they regarded the case of the rich young man, listen to this, not as in a, any way exceptional, but as typical. Okay? The fact that they ask who then can be saved seems to indicate that they regarded the situation with the rich young man not as a unique situation, but as a typical situation. For they do not ask which rich man, but quite generally, who then can be saved? This is how he ends this. For every man or woman, even the disciples themselves, belongs to the rich ones for whom it is so difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven. The answer Jesus gives showed his disciples that they had understood him well. Salvation through following Jesus is not something we can achieve for ourselves, but with God, all things are possible. Amazing. And he's summing up exactly what I've been saying, which is, and Isaiah, you can hop up here, which is, for us, obedience to the call is not possible by the things we do. Remember how the story started? What good deed must I do to enter eternal life? We get to the end and you see the disciples saying, who can be saved then? Jesus says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is he saying that? Because they just encountered the rich young man. What he's saying is this, it's very difficult, we might even say impossible, for someone who is holding on to control of their life to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why is that hard or impossible? Because in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, what does it require? Unless you lose your life, you'll never find it. And if you find your life, you'll lose it. Right? We say like this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will give everything unto you. But if you're seeking everything else, it's extremely difficult and maybe impossible for you to seek the one thing that is required for entrance into the kingdom, which is not what you can do. It's what he has done. Seek 
his righteousness and his kingdom, not yours. So the rich young man is asking, what must I do to be righteous? And Jesus' summed up answer is, there's nothing for you to do to be righteous, but there is something for you to do in order to inherit his righteousness, which is to simply lay down your doing and come into a life of becoming. For mortals, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Costly grace is purchased with the price of obedience. It's so interesting. Who can be saved in his response? For mortals, it is impossible. That is huge. That challenges all the salvation messages that most of us grew up hearing. Repeat this prayer and you'll be saved. Right? And the, the repeated prayer is not bad. But there's an idea behind that message that says you have to do something to be saved. And the gospel message is for mortals, salvation is impossible. Why? Paul says it like this. Salvation was achieved like this apart from our own works so that no man can boast. So, salvation is impossible for us. Why? So that at no point in our lives do we look at the work of our hands and say, that saved me. But with God, not only is salvation possible, all things are possible. And he looks at Peter when Peter asks, we've left everything to follow you. And he says to him who left everything and followed. Now remember, Peter, didn't, he didn't say, this is what we have done. We, we sold our possessions. We gave this to the poor. We did. Peter is simply saying, we, died, we did exactly what you're asking for. We left everything and we followed you. So what about us? What does that mean for us? And he tells them, when the son of man is seated on glory, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who's left houses, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children, or fields for my name's sake will receive, listen, a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. What was the question that the rich young man asked about? How do I get eternal life? Jesus looks at Peter who has left everything to follow Jesus. And he says, for those of you that have left all of that stuff to follow, you will inherit eternal life. Do you see this? After just encountering the rich young man, he answers Peter and says, you will get eternal life. Why? Because you left everything. You were willing to lay down the things that kept you double and inherit the thing that made you single-mindedly obedient, which has led you into union. Therefore, when I'm seated on my throne, you'll be seated on your throne. When I, That's what he says. When I sit on my throne in glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. When I sit on my throne, you'll sit on your throne. When I am lifted up, you will be lifted up. You will inherit God's own life because of your willingness to lay down your own life and follow. Do you see this? And many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And this is the kingdom. 
So bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to ask you a few questions. And I just want you to think about this. Number one, what are the things that God has called you to that you haven't said yes to? What are the things that God has called you to that you haven't said yes to? And that doesn't have to be something, it might be something major, but it could be something very simple. Has God called you to forgive someone that you have not said yes to forgiving? Right? Has God called you to do something with some of your resources that you haven't done yet because it makes, it, it makes you feel a little less safe than you did? Has God called you, maybe, to lay down some things that you've spent your time on in order to inherit better things with your time? I mean, it could be little. It could be huge. But what are the things that God has called you to that you haven't said yes to? Number one. Number two, follow-up question to that is, why haven't you said yes to them? What's the reasoning behind you not saying yes to them? And number three, are you truly willing to leave everything and follow? And like I said last week, this, this, that's not saying you quit your job and you live homeless and you know all that stuff and you follow Jesus. That, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is a way of seeing. It's a way of living. It's a way of understanding and observing and uh, processing life. You lay down how you used to process and you pick up his ways. Every decision you make is through his ways. That's what he's talking about. So have you, in this room, anybody listen to this later, have you laid down everything to follow Jesus? Let me, um, while your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just wanna, wanna read this last thing over you. Just as you're thinking about those questions. There's a quote from a fourth century monk named Macarius. And I'm saying that we're real Southern and American. But this is what he said. He's a fourth century monk in Egypt. He said this. Within the heart are unfathomable depths. In it are the workshop, or excuse me, in it is the workshop of riches. There in the heart, Christ takes his rest with the angels and the spirits of the saints. The heart is small, but dragons and lions are there. There likewise is God, life, the kingdom, apostles, etc. All things are there. Now, why do I read that? Because I think we have made Christianity this um, cut and dry, yes or no, um, unimaginative, boring religion. And so if you say yes, while your eyes are about, heads are about, eyes are closed. If you say yes to Jesus, out of, for example, fear. Like, let's say you, you started a relationship with Jesus based on a message about hell, and you were so scared that you said yes to Jesus because you never wanted to go there, okay? Fear is a really poor basis of relationship, by the way. But what do you do when you get 10, 15, 20, 50 years down the road 
And all of a sudden, what was once your excitement about what happens when you die has become a life of boredom in Christ because we were never told there was anything else before then. That's when we start to get in this double-minded space where we believe that God doesn't necessarily care about what we do in this life because all he really cares is about what we do with the life that is to come. When in reality, just like the quote I just read, within you and I are unfathomable depths that the rest of our life is designed to not just observe, to explore. And we do that through obedience to the call. That's the call of Christ. He's calling us into an exploration of the depths of who he has made us to be because who he's made us to be is really who he is. So what are the things that the Lord has called you to say yes to that you haven't said yes to? I want to I dare you today to begin to dream about what that looks like for you to say yes. And again, it could be small. 10,000 small things make up one big thing. It could, I mean, it could be small. But if, but if we're going to purchase costly grace, we've got to learn to live a life of obedience in everything big and small. So God, I pray right now that you would challenge our hearts to go into the depths of where we not just find ourselves, but where we find you enthroned, to go into the depths and to discover dormant dreams and to discover dormant visions and to discover dormant things. And the reason that we never pursued them as we see today is not because we lacked the excitement. To be honest with you, the reason a lot of us never pursue them is because we lack the one thing that is required. And the one thing that is required is to simply lay everything down and follow. I mean, how many decisions, Lord, have I personally, I've made so many decisions in my life that's based on security rather than following the obedient call of Christ that I sometimes wonder where I would be in my walk had I just said yes all my days. Now, I believe the Lord has redeemed that, but my point in saying that is this. You would live such a life of intimate union if you could just give the Lord a yes. Lee McDermott, my spiritual father, he says this all the time. He says, everything the Lord asks of us, we need to respond with a yes comma. And what he means by that is we need to respond with a yes, and then depending on the situation, what do I need to do? How do I need to do it? Where do I need to, you know, et cetera. But everything the Lord asks of us, there needs to be an immediate yes. And so, Lord, I pray that this will be the year that that's what our lives are marked by. So we choose costly grace, and then the way that we purchase that costly grace is through the currency of obedience. And just like we opened up with, give us this day our daily bread. You only have bread if you're obedient with the thing that God does give you, which is grain. So how many of us, our dreams, maybe our dreams, we could start to see them as grain. And what we do with the call of Christ will determine if that grain becomes what it's supposed to be, which is bread. So I pray today, God, give us today our daily bread. 
today. Give us our daily bread. Let us live in a way where the divine and the human are incarnated together. We love you, honor you. It's in your name, amen.